0: Hello, my name is Dr. Stephen Hassan. Today I'm honored to do the interview from land whose original caretakers are the Massachusetts Pona POAG. In these moments, acknowledging the land and indigenous peoples are important expressions of solidarity with First Nations and indigenous people throughout time on this continent that we share. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Cindy Blackstock, Gikstan, First Nations member, professor of social work at McGill University, and the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, and longtime Indigenous children's advocate. Cindy, thank you so much for doing the second interview with me today on the very complicated topic of mind control and colonialism. You were my guest in late 2021 on the topic of dismantling colonialism, and that conversation continues to evolve. We are broaching this topic today because there are many people asking questions about what's going on in the world. Today we will be unpacking some of this. Welcome, Dr. Blackstock.
1: Well, thank you, Stephen, and thank you, everyone. I join you from unceded and unsurrendered Algonquin territory here in Ottawa, Ontario. Um, I think one of the key messages is that this whole idea of propaganda that's familiar to many of us, we've known it's been out there, but we haven't always considered how it affects some of the most serious human rights abuses around the world how it injects itself into the governance of societies, into the way that the public sees or does not see these human rights abuses and the way they react. And indeed, even into the population that is experiencing those human rights abuses. So when I became more familiar with uh, the work that you're doing, Stephen, and particularly as I started to see this whole propaganda thing um, in a more expansive way, in the whole idea that that's only one part of mind control. And then started to wonder about what are the interplays between mind control and colonialism? And how has that shaped the relationships between Indigenous peoples in Canada, but around the globe, and the way that we interact with the public in the state? And is it one of the keys to kind of better understanding that, to kind of liberate, us from those bad, unhelpful patterns of the past so that we can truly recalibrate in a positive direction towards justice, towards respect, and towards um, reconciliation.
0: Yeah. It's, it, and I just want to say that I believe you heard me on a Lincoln Project podcast where I was talking about the urgency to even do something like a Manhattan Project on the enormity of the scale of undue influence and how it's being um, amplified over the digital uh, world worldwide. And I also want to just state categorically, I am a white male. Uh, I'm 67 years old and I grew up in the Cold War. So I had a lot of indoctrination and yay for America. And yeah, we need to fight the communists in the Vietnam War. And you know, yeah, it was terrible what happened to the Indians, but everything's okay. And I, I, I confess my profound ignorance. And I still feel like I have such a steep learning curve still to just uh, allow the enormity of the genocide, the cultural genocide and the actual genocide done to indigenous people of course first nations and in the united states but everywhere around the world it's just helped me see a bigger picture of history and on a on a simplistic level um it's kind of predator and prey you know it's it's people who think they're superior and maybe they have superior weapons but they impose their will their ideology to steal the land to steal resources and to enslave and try to brainwash uh, people to their language and their culture and to, to turn their back to their own. But I think it's failed to a large extent because indigenous people have been finding their voice more and more. And we're in the midst, I believe, of a historic compensation agreement that I'm hoping the Canadian government will finally honor. I think the lawsuit was won years ago, but the money, the compensation money has not been delivered. So can you bring us up to date on on your work and what's happening in uh, in First Nations?
1: Sure. So part of this kind of indoctrination has been uh, making... Canada is really apartheid public service delivery to First Nations, uh, almost normalized in society. So what happened there is that the federal government would fund First Nations public services, but at far lesser levels than everybody else. You know, um, a lot of our First Nations don't even have clean water to drink. Uh, you mm-hmm. would go, your kids are going to school and schools are underfunded by 50 percent compared to other kids. And this is in the wake of the residential schools, which only closed here in 1996. And uh, some of your listeners will be knowing that that uh, thousands of children died in those schools from abuse and from uh, poor health practices and everything else. So the trauma of all that.
0: May I interrupt you for one second? Forgive me. But for our listeners who may not understand, residential schools were were part of a systematic religious conversion Indoctrination, like Chinese communist brainwashing, but in many ways worse. Um, and th- these schools have been set up all over the continent. And uh, children were raped, children were beaten. People—they're finding bodies all over. So I, I just—I just don't want to assume our listeners understand when you say residential schools and the and the issues involved. This was a very deliberate act to Absolutely. brainwash indigenous people, to turn their back on their culture, their language, their families. Children were stolen from their own families. It's outrageous. I'm yeah. sorry. But- no, it's true. Like you would, be, you to be a parent and
1: uh, the RCMP, our National Police Force, uh, and other police forces would come up and round up your kids. You wouldn't even know they're gone. They were out playing and all of a sudden they're gone. And then they're put into these horrible places which were called schools, but were much more like um, death camps, to be frank. Uh, you were more likely to die in one of these schools as a child, a First Nations child, Métis or Inuit child, uh, than a soldier was in the Second World War. Uh, that's how dangerous these places were. And they called them schools as part of this prop, this this mind influence. right? Oh, well, this must be just like a boarding school where the rich kids go, right? Uh, They weren't schools. They really were exactly what you're talking about. Almost like a cult kind of thing happened. I'd say it
0: was cultic. Yeah, Yeah. I would say outright that it was authoritarian cultism at work.
1: So um, what happened in the wake of that in 1996? The government says, oh, that was bad. Okay, we'll apologize. Uh, But it continues to underfund the services across Mm -hmm. the board. So uh, we litigated against Canada, along with the Assembly of First Nations, our national First Nations political organization. As you Mm -hmm. point out, 2016, the Canadian government's found racially discriminating against these kids under our laws and told, you need to stop. They don't stop. (laughs) They send out a bunch of ministers, tell the public everything is going to be good. We love Indigenous kids. Um, and then they don't comply. So we've had 21 non-compliance orders against the Canadian government since 2016. Um, the non-compliance has been linked to the deaths of children and the unnecessary family separations of thousands of others. And finally, with the um, the news hitting the headlines about the children in the graves, along right. with profound and very public legal losses, the government was forced into a place where they finally had to do something late this fall. So now they've said, okay, well, we will pay compensation for the kids that we hurt. And we will do something about stopping the discrimination that's still going on. And this is the first time they've even admitted that discrimination is going on. Part of this mind control and influence is saying, oh, don't worry, everybody. It's all in the past. Everything's good now, right? Um, and so they finally admitted it's ongoing. But we're still finding uh, that they are still trying to protect themselves. They make themselves the victim, right? That's the other part of this. It's like, you don't recognize how much we care for you and how the hard work and all the hours we're putting in for you. Uh, instead of focusing on what the their own courts have found to be willful and reckless discrimination, in the worst case scenario, so that's the piece we have to do is stop the discrimination, and then we have to stop them from doing it again. And this is where your work on on uh, the influence continuum is so important.
0: Mm, thank you. I, I I hope that my work can evolve to the point where uh, experts like yourself, indigenous experts, can translate the, the, the theories and the science to really help people recover from generations of trauma. Can you talk a little bit about what, what it's like, the psychology of an indigenous person in 2022?
1: Well, I, you know, as you started out, I think really think I would give a lot of homage to the intergenerational strength of Indigenous peoples and in their distinct cultures to have endured this kind of colonial and that residential schools were only part of it. There right. was the starvation. There was a, a kind of a, a permit system there. You were only allowed off the re- reserve with a permit. There's this ongoing, um, purposeful, um, lack of education of the public in the school in 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 mainstream schools so they knew nothing about this so it was a very toxic thing but as a result of residential schools you can imagine the pain of having for over 100 years your kids removed from you and put into these places and if you resisted they would arrest you and they would throw you in jail and take all of your children so a child was taken at five and they would be only, quote, return to you at 16, but at a very different person and often full of trauma, right? So we need to get at that trauma. That wasn't something we did to ourselves. It's something the Canadian state and the churches together did mm-hmm. uh, to us. And then Canada on its own continued it after that. But I also noticed it in other ways, Stephen. And I think when I first heard you on the Lincoln Project, I thought, well, this is, yeah, but it can't be that bad. I mean, honestly, that was kind of my reaction. But Uh then I started to think about it. And I thought, thought about my own behavior in this legal case, where I had consistently presented evidence to the government of Canada about the inequalities and the solutions to fix it. I involved them in all of that work, and they agreed with it, and they still didn't do anything about it. But I kept on throwing more and more and more evidence at them. So I had to step back and say, what is it about my way of thinking, of relating to the government that was problematic there. And then uh, so I started to think, well, it's not about them not knowing. It's not about them not having the solution. It is about them choosing to discriminate against children regardless of the harms, including when the children die. So that means you have to recalibrate your approach. And then I started to see other things in different ways. For example, the whole idea of a photo walk. You know, uh, we have ministers up here, government officials, uh, ministers. They love photo ops, right? That's their currency.
0: PR. Yeah,
1: PR. They, and they want a photo around the, 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 um, arm of a First Nations person that they can put up on their website. Um, and that gives cover for some of the malfeasance that government is doing Mm -hmm. or the signing of documents. You know, we're going to have a signing ceremony. They love signing ceremonies. And these documents themselves often don't change people's lives. They're the appearance of change without substantive change. So I'm starting to unpack all of this and to say, you know, uh, we've fallen into these patterns of relating to government that haven't always moved the ball forward when it comes to real justice for people. And we have to reclaim our critical thinking about some of these things that you just do by reflex. So I try to watch when I do something by reflex instead of by really thinking it through.
0: Mm. And as a white male, uh, and of course we have, uh, horribly treated indigenous people in the United States, uh, Uh, or what's called the United States. Um, I really feel like I was indoctrinated. I was programmed into this worldview until my education in depth began about when you contacted me. Uh, Maybe a few months before that, um, I watched a film called Dawn Land that was produced by a member of my uh, Jewish temple about uh, Maine uh, uh, kidnapping of children. That was my first, oh my God, I didn't know this even existed. And um, and her name is Dr. Michi Lesser. She did a recent film about how in Massachusetts bounties were actually given to kill indigenous people. I just didn't know. And the enormity of the horror Um, it's hard to take in and it's hard to go, you know what, (laughs) this happened. And for social justice sake, we have to rewrite the history to be more accurate to what happened and not just use words to apologize, but deeds to actually change in the direction that it needs to change. So what else I want to say is that when I was reading your doctoral dissertation and your breath of life theory, for me, your intelligence, I'm going to compliment you, your brilliance, your desire to see bigger pictures, like the, the, how it relates, trying to connect physics, trying to c- connect indigenous philosophy And caretaking of the land, this very healthy, organic relationship with nature uh, is what we really need more of on the planet today. So I'd like to ask you to describe a little bit more about your theory, but also how Indigenous people can, and their wisdom can help everybody today.
1: Well, one of the things that I think is is becoming increasingly problematic in the world is that we think in dichotomies, and we think um, we think of ourselves in separation um, to one another and uh, in across time. We're separated from those in the past. We're not really uh, bound any duty to those in the future, and we're also separated from the land. And I I think that these things are highly problematic and they are actually in direct contrast with uh, some of the hallmarks of uh, First Nations thinking. And I wanna be careful here to say, I don't wanna generalize, uh, but these are kind of cross-cutting philosophies that most First Nations would agree with. Um, For example, that we aren't, uh, like the idea of um, climate uh, change is really a Western concept because it only looks at the land as a threat to human existence. Mm. For us, we are part of the land. Mm. So when you throw litter on the ground, you're actually throwing litter on yourself and on your children and on your Mm. grandchildren. Mm. It's a very different kind of way of thinking about the land and relationship. We also think about our interconnection to everything. So uh, we are connected to the salmon. We're connected uh, to the buffalo. We are connected to other human beings of diverse and very distinct uh, traditions, ways of being, ways of knowing. Uh, we are connected across time. We give homage to the fact that we are part of the human condition is that we are more alike the, to our ancestors than we are different. And that they were probably right about most things. (laughs) It isn't this reflex that everybody who came before us was wrong and their knowledge can be improved upon. It's a real uh, honoring of the thousands of generations of humanity that came before us and honoring that knowledge and really thinking about it carefully and really questioning the concept of progress, i.e. new knowledge or, or knowledge around the corner. Is it really progress if our goal is to really uplift the human condition and uplift the human condition in an interconnected world? And then what is our, What you know, this whole thing in Western um, thinking about wanting to be remembered, is very foreign to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like the idea that you can actually be remembered seems to me to be a really uninformed kind of thought. Because when I think about like a hundred years ago, there was, you know, a, a, a billion or so more people on the planet. And I ask people, name five. <laughs> you know, like we, we will most likely not be remembered. But we are the echoes in someone else's lived reality. So mm. in every second, we make different choices. You know, am I going to take that plastic cup? Or am I going to bring along my my thermos and just refill it? Mm. Uh, am I going to be kind to this person? Even though I'm feeling kind of crabby. Am I going to... Um, decide not to buy that item, even though I really want it, I really don't need it. And Mm. maybe I'll donate that money to the people of Ukraine or others who are suffering human rights abuses around the world. You know, these are the types of choices that we make and the Breath of Life theory kind of shows uh, what is that First Nations worldview and how that can be applied uh, to solve some of these human rights injustices Uh, But I think more broadly, how we can look at the world differently in a more sustainable way that provides us more pragmatic solutions to make the right choices for ourselves, for our families, and for future generations and for the climate at the same time.
0: Yeah. So, wow, there's so much to unpack, but I want to start by just saying there's a real qualitative difference between wisdom and information. And, and history and modernism. And this notion that newer is better is not so. Not it's something always. the advertising world and the people who are making the new products that are gonna break in six months so you can buy another version of it so they can make more money instead of really thinking about the world as a living sphere or <laughs> an organic spiritual sphere and that it does matter <laughs> what we do, our choices and such. I wanna also highlight uh, if I remember your, your theory correctly that uh, you, you think about seven generations of your ancestors at all times is in the back of your mind and seven generations of your future children. And I feel like that's such a vital thing that's missing, that we're not children-centric. We're not thinking about what what kind of world are we giving our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, and just to have that kind of humility. And as you were talking, I was remembering, um, I I think it may be in your theory, but also possibly a, a past conversation that we've had where Uh, we discussed Maslow and you pointed out to me, you know, Maslow left out the community spiritual (laughs) part of his self-actualization pyramid, which is, you know, physical security all the way up. Can you say a little bit more about, about um, the the needed groundedness uh, uh, that, that, I think everybody needs to have with community and with virtue and with wisdom.
1: Yeah, I, I really, uh, for me, it's it's really essential because I think this allows us, and it's part, it kind of speaks to your idea of of avoiding mind control, is that when you look to the past and you think about, first of all, what is, what is really important in life? When you, you get rid of all the trappings of things, right? Really, you get down to the basics which are, um, you know, trying to live your life as a good person. Uh, uh, try, knowing what it is to be loved, but also to love other people. To have your very basic needs met. And to live in generosity with the community around you. To be a learning person, who doesn't just encircle themselves with their own ideas, but actually looks out at the world and sees what else there is to learn, a curiosity, I guess. You know, these are some of the basic things that you get, right? Right. Um, And I think that a lot of that stuff has been already lived experience from those who came before us. And that's why I always, when I'm puzzled, or I want to know more, or if I find myself even worse getting entrapped in these things, like I need that latest, new and improved, then I think, Maybe I should spend a bit more time thinking about this. Mm. Um, because new and improved is only new and improved for those who know, don't even think about the past. And uh, that's why it's such an easy selling mark. Uh, mm. I find a lot of new and improved is not really new and improved, right?
0: 100%. Um,
1: and what we're doing in this kind of technology circles, we're actually inventing machines that we're not neurologically or biologically able to manage. And uh, that's the piece that we're setting in, in play. And I think that's very dangerous. And this is why we need to think seven generations ahead. So often we have these machines and we think, well, it's working for me, right? Right now, my life's easier. Where, uh, where would I be without my iPhone? Well, you ask the thousands of generations of folks who came before us and they, were, they actually made it without the iPhone. And it wasn't that we, it wasn't that, um, you know, we did gain some conveniences from it. But the question needs to be asked,
0: what did we lose? 100%. And this device, I confess I have one, too, um, is the perfect mind control device. If you are an authoritarian, whether it's a religious cult leader or political cult leader or a multi-level marketing guru or a trafficker or a pimp, this device, unless one is using wisdom, and using the device for our goals and not just being addicted and having our brain circuits triggered uh, to have more attention, to spend more time on the platform. Unless we're in control of our minds and our bodies, we're, in, we're lost. I think the, the future looks very bleak unless we can have a, a revolution of, and an evolution of consciousness Including that groundedness in community and values, spiritual values, um, that we don't do to others what you don't want done to you. I'm of the Jewish tradition, and that's that's Hillel's teaching: don't do to others what you don't want done to you. The rest is commentary. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, was part of my my uh, my history's uh, wisdom, um, and. Even if you don't feel like doing the right thing, you do the right thing because it's right. <laughs> because it's expected as a member of the community. And what I'm seeing and I, it was echoed in the convoy, you know, rhetoric and stuff is my freedom is more important than the public good. <laughs> My, my personal need to not have a mask or not have a vaccination is more important than saving other people's lives. That is so bogus.
1: It was bogus. And for your viewers, I, I live and work in right downtown Ottawa where this nonsense was unfolding And um, there was a couple things. One is, is that there was movement jacking happening where, uh, and that's uh, for your listeners who aren't familiar with it. It's kind of like hijackings were in the past. You know, you have a bunch of folks going on, on a trip somewhere and all of a sudden somebody commandeers the airplane or the bus and holds you hostage. Um, Well, in movement jacking, what we have are white supremacist movements, anti-Semitic movements, other uh, types of uh, those types of, misguided movements. They will come in and they will use this idea of the uh, vaccines or masks as cover for their real aim. So there were anti-Semitic flags, there was a Nazi flag flying around uh, there, and they would, they'll use things, they'll use the word protest. They'll actually do as Lincoln said, use the ghost dictionary and weaponize words like freedom uh, yes. in to be able to kind of further their causes as part of this mind control and influence continuum kind of work. We saw that just all over the place and they would call it free and they would want you to call it a free, a free protest so that you actually reinforce their thinking. So, you know, when you are you, when you would say, well, you're not free, that just reinforces their frame. What we needed to say is that, you know what, you are occupiers, uh, you are lawless, right. uh, you are um, arguing for white supremacy. And uh, just stay away from that whole debate. And, you know, like the science speaks for itself. Uh, They were, um, I think that that was a, that really brought to Canada that the experience in the United States, QAnon and the big lie is not something we're immune from.
0: Yeah, and I just want to go out on a limb, but that's my life work for 45 years to, you know, Speak truth to power, etc. I really want to name uh, the Coke uh, Industries, Putin, the Middle Eastern oil, and 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 billionaires that want to uh, make more money by keeping fossil fuel you know, prices high, well, have, let's have a war. Then we can jack up the prices and make more money because we can. And uh, white supremacists and a uh, colleague and friend, Dave Troy, has been doing a lot of historical connecting the dots over the last few decades. And a lot of the what's happening today is actually the same bad actors from 50 years ago who think whites are, you know, should be supreme and that black people, indigenous people are inferior. They actually have this ideology in their head. They also, many of them, think that women are inferior to men and that gay people are inferior to everyone else. So they have this very rigid black and white, all or nothing, good versus evil ideology. But because of their money and their power and their influence uh, that they have... Strategically advanced over decades to dismantle laws protecting the land, protecting environment, protecting you know checks and balances of power, uh, buying lobbyists in my country to influence uh, legislation, even writing the legislation that they hand to the politician to introduce. We have to we have to call out the bad actors who are intentionally spending the money on PR, organizing PSYOPs, deliberately manipulating our data and and platforms. Um, But by having that knowledge, we can step back and it makes sense what's happening. It's wrong and it needs to change. But until we can correctly diagnose what's happening, we can't set about working for a solution.
1: Right. I think, you know, and you can check me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this because you're the expert in this area, but when it came to mind, mind control and I was, you know, walking by some of these convoy members and hearing what they're saying, uh, it actually looks like they're really stupid, right? Because uh, <laughs> all they are is an echo chamber of their own reality. And they, 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 they refute, they by reflex flush away any kind of evidence to the contrary. They can't have a conversation about it. It's a shouting at you. And I think that that's one of the hallmarks of when actually uh, mind control and colonialism and other things have really gotten embedded and infused in yourself, is it takes otherwise thinking people and it reduces down your world so all you see is this and all you can operate in is this. And there it feels like you're more powerful in that space. That's the seduction of it. But really what you've done is you are in chains. Your mind has been chained. Uh, by others to use for other purposes. And I think that that is something that I see in colonialism, it's something I saw in a convoy, it's something I saw play out in the United States. And of course, this is something that's been new, but that it's been uh, it's been empowered by these devices, right? Um, now, just sitting at home, you can get all kinds of stuff that you think you're choosing on the internet, but it's actually all these algorithms making choices for you, feeding that same information. So, your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and you feel more powerful and powerful and powerful as you come to people who are just like you and think the way that you do, and you don't have to deal with anyone from the outside.
0: Yeah, so much to say, but I I guess I wanna, uh, for those who may be listening to this uh, and to my story for the first time, Uh, I got interested in this subject, Cindy, because it happened to me. Mm -hmm. I got deceptively recruited into a front group of the Moon organization and turned my back on my family, my religion, my country, democracy. I became a a right-wing fascist. Uh, And I want to also share that yesterday, uh, my professor, who was the one I credit for telling me, you need to do a doctorate. And you need to do a quantitative study on your model to see whether it has scientific validity and I will supervise your research. Well, he presented yesterday, um, uh, actually on Wednesday of this week, about he has a a very advanced model of developmental psychology and, and, we discussed about how this mindset regresses you to a lower stage of development to more like a child. And so you're not reasoning like an adult anymore. (laughs) And you may follow an authority figure that you're afraid of and you're afraid to be who will punish you, but you're basically not acting like a, a, a developed adult human being.
1: Yeah, and then part of that is the work that you're talking about is how do we get out of that, right? If you're there or you have a family member who is there, um, then first of all, how do you safeguard against it? But then second of all, if a person, you know, because it is, it just happens so incrementally and none of us are immune to it, right? I talked earlier about my own experience, throwing all this evidence, doing all these behaviors that weren't right. really moving the ball yet. But, um, you know, one of the things that I think sometimes is frightening, it can happen on a very mass level, but the intervention to it is, it appears to me, be much more on the individual level. Uh, And I'm wondering, like, that can feel pretty daunting when you have so many people in these, like, QAnon movements or the convoy movement. Um, Is that really the only option, is to kind of start asking questions and being curious about the person and helping them unpack the rest of their wonderful humanity and start them thinking about this and engaging in conversation without judging them?
0: So my my thinking is a complex systems thinking, and I know that you're familiar with the idea of instead of thinking on a linear level of A causes B causes C, to think about reality from the microcosmic to the macrocosmic and increasing feedback loops and decreasing feedback loops. If one is thinking that way, I think we need to do multiple things on multiple levels, including an intervention with educators, with media people, with politicians, with business, with tech, but and develop um, preventive inoculation efforts, like a public health approach, inoculation to prevent, intervention methodology to uh, to to help. Uh, folks who've been co-opted, and then recovery services. And so what I found from my work of 45 years helping people exit, I mean, I was working on a family level, basically, clinically. So someone would call me, my son, my daughter, my mother, my father has gotten co-opted by this cult. What do we do? I would coach them. Or people would read my books or hear me on TV and then contact me and say, you know, I've been seeing regular therapists. They don't have a clue of how to help me, something like that. But I do believe that love is stronger than mind control, like the real thing. Because when you're in a cult, they say they love you. They say you're part of their family. They say that that you know uh, they, that they're they're part. Uh, you'll be you'll be taken care of by them forever. But the reality is, is it's a lie. And the minute you question, the minute you rebel, you're kicked out, you're shunned, you may be harassed, you may even be killed depending on the type of cult. If you're in a terrorist cult, they may try to even kill you or harm your family or a trafficker or a pimp might try to actually physically harm you. Um, but I, I, I think that we need a top-down approach, like the top top people who actually care about social justice, who have philanthropic foundations, If they really want to, if they really care and they want to make a difference, they could be funding research, they could be funding uh, uh, videos, documentaries, and amplifying. Here's for me, and I just did a TEDx uh, Boston talk that will be online soon. I, I really feel like we need to appeal to all the former members of any type of authoritarian regime or cult or multi-level marketing or abusive, mm-hmm. controlling husband or wife even. If we can do like a hashtag, I got out, <laughs> and make it okay and not a shameful thing that I was in the Moonies or somebody was in QAnon, and just start sharing, educate yourself first, learn about mind control, but then share and, and and then realize there's life after cult, you know? Like admitting you got duped and you got brainwashed is not the worst thing in the world. There's life after cult. So that's, for me, It's it, it, we need to do a very complicated thing And, but we have millions of former members and refugees from authoritarian countries who know what it's like to grow up mind controlled and who hunger for more freedom and and respect and dignity. And
1: I think part of what we, uh, like I remember uh, going to university in 70s and 80s, and you know, there was a bit of education around, well, watch out for the Hare Krishnas, you know, they'll be in the libraries looking for you when you're stressed out. But what there wasn't a good conversation about is that this actual kind of influence can happen on a societal level, uh, at an organizational level, at a movement level, that it's not just something that happens to somebody who's having a hard time, that it actually can infuse itself in much more uh, devastating ways Uh, on a societal level, and we're seeing that in Russia right now, where people, all the dissenting opinion is being criminalized by Putin. Uh, So the Russian public are receiving, oh, nothing, uh, but the reinforcing thing, oh, well, we're the freedom fighters here, we're going in to rescue these kids. Thankfully, there's many courageous Russian people who are still declaring themselves free and, and taking a stand. But this is, this is actually what we need to come to grips with. And this is why I think it's so important for colonialism, because I think we, in many ways, we were the pilot project for it. So um, we need... A
0: pilot project that has been going on for hundreds of years. Yeah,
1: exactly. They (laughs) arrived on the old shores and we were there and it was like, you are not human. It begins with that. It begins with this dehumanization, either a proclamation straight out that you're not a human being or that somehow you're less worthy and you would be a better human being if you only benefited from what I have to offer. And that dehumanization from the perspective of those uh, who are the aggressors, it legitimizes immoral behavior. So that's why they were able to say, well, you know, it's not really thieving of the land because these people, they can't manage the land anyway without the benefit of our support. So that's the way that it happens. And then it starts to inject itself and infuse in society in all kinds of ways, into academia, into business, into social uh, justice groups even. Uh, Nobody's immune from it. But what the first step to me is learning about it. The second step is really being uh, aware, more conscious of when you're not thinking, when you're acting on reflex, and really go back to ask yourself, is that really what I wanna do? Like, why do I always do things that way? And then try to really unpack it and help others do that, too, and invite others in your circle to point that out for you. I think that that, for me, in this very early journey of getting a better understanding this has been really important.
0: Yeah, and and part of developmental psychology of being an adult is the ability to hold other points of view without losing your own, yeah. to be able to look at what fits, what what makes sense, what doesn't fit, what doesn't make sense, and to not just be in this black and white, all or nothing, childish, as you were saying, dichotomous, Mm -hmm. you know, binary view. Life is way more complicated than that, and if we take a humble attitude of, I don't know, let me learn, versus I know, I'm the expert, uh, I don't need to listen to anyone else, I don't need to listen to critiques, Um, we all do so much better. Yeah, and that's why Um, the
1: attacks on journalism are so dangerous, right? Um, You know, I find it so interesting these people say, oh, well, we're out there doing fake news. Putin did it. Trump did it. Um, What they're really saying is we don't want you to listen to information that's out there so that you can make up your own mind. That's really what they're saying.
0: No, what they're saying is our information is true. over
1: (laughs) here. Look over here. And everybody else is crazy and that that kind of stuff when we elect leaders I look for that now right are uh, I mean you could have a different point of view than I do politically but no. are you trying to uh, just uh, just really create a situation where everything you do is right and everything everyone else does is wrong when politics becomes an identity I don't vote for those people
0: Smart you know it's I vote for smart. ideas
1: not for not for uh, political identities or parties.
0: Makes sense to me. So I was going to share a story. When the Soviet Union fell, I was invited by psychiatrists and psychologists who were experiencing Western cults rushing into the former Soviet Union to recruit. They invited me to come and speak. And so I was teaching about brainwashing and mind control. And the reactions of them were like, and I'm going to use the accent they used, doctor hassan do you understand you're describing the whole system of pedagogy of the soviet union <laughs> do you understand doctor hassan we would put uh, dissidents in psychiatric hospitals for criticizing the regime and then then they after a few more days they said oh now we get it you are counseling us and i said if the shoe fits you know i'm i'm happy that it will help you but What's missing from all the media that I'm hearing about Putin, they're calling him all kinds of names Mm -hmm. and crazy, but nobody's saying, hey, here's a guy who grew up in an authoritarian cult programmed to believe in this hierarchy and this mystique of the glory of Mother Russia, and he's on automatic pilot thinking he's going to fulfill his childhood indoctrination. I'm not hearing anybody... With that lens, of course, I'm the cult expert. So why would anyone else <laughs>
1: think that way? Right, you know? and also looking at the way that they're he's controlling and trying to control his own population, right? Right, um, and that that has to be part of the conversation. And that's exactly where the parallels are for colonialism, right? We had yes. yeah we had a we had a uh, a group come over and wanting to control everything. I find it, I drives me nuts. I have to say, when I see uh, quote Canadians. Uh, Now saying, uh, you know, not all, many people are good, but you hear them say, well, we don't want more immigrants because they'll come over here. They'll not be able to dress like us or talk like us, and they'll be forcing their own ways on us. Well, thank you very much. That's exactly what happened to us. Yeah. Right? It was like, (laughs) they're moving in. Uh, There's a reason why our parliament buildings look a lot like uh, the uh, parliament buildings in London. Uh, it's not because they respected the local tradition the local right. governance or any of this stuff right but they right. have so dehumanized us that they can say well this was this was legitimate that what we did the importing of all of our stuff was legitimate but god help us we don't want to be hit by anybody else's ideas uh coming into our country
0: right no i i and i think you're right to be outraged and uh and they're on automatic pilot yeah. too yeah, from are. their own cultural indoctrination and everything. Yeah. And I want to I want to take the last few minutes talking about solutions, your ideas for what we can do to support First Nations and Indigenous people everywhere.
1: Well, one of the things that we have been really excited about is working with your institute and with Desiree Kane, your colleague, and mm-hmm. yourself on um, kind of looking at, at helping people understand this whole idea of undue influence and how it was used as a key colonial tool on the public, on the government, and on uh, indigenous peoples as well. And how that shaped some of the contemporary patterns and understanding that mm-hmm. and understanding it's not a weakness on behalf of people. This is just part of uh, them taking advantage in, uh, in, in bad ways of the human condition. The good news is we can we can take advantage and resurface the positive aspects of the human tradition and truly embrace self-determination. You cannot. Their worry is that you can be self-determining within this mind control thing. You can actually think that you're self-determining. They'll make you think, oh, well, you're making decisions for yourself, but you're really not. Um, And what we need to do is really pierce through this way of thinking and interacting and viewing ourselves that helps us truly become self-determining and dignified and connected to those traditional cultures and teachings that we're so blessed with. And what I'm paying attention to, is, as I said, is when I get into those patterns. Uh, For example, one of the things that uh, this work has helped me do, when it came time to announce that uh, $20 billion for compensation, etc., Everybody else had their news conference, but I made sure I had a separate news conference where I said, you know, these are just words on paper. Nothing changed for kids today. Mm. They have to land this, right? Yeah. Um, so being aware of how news conferences, how signing documents, how negotiations, how all of these things are actually mechanisms to be able to reinforce that mind control, and then... Once we identify those, it's about how do we change our behavior, even if the other systems are behaving the same. The way that we change those systems is behaving differently ourselves in peaceful and respectful ways, but in ways that really reflect our authentic thinking and critical thinking.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree a thousand percent. And I think because I've worked with people born in cults. Uh, for example, I interviewed a psychologist, John Delin, who is a sixth generation Mormon who uh, was excommunicated by the Latter day Saints because he spoke out for gay rights and so many people were committing suicide and such. Um, and he said, You know, I didn't understand the history of Joseph Smith, I didn't understand that he was a fraud. <laughs> he was convicted you know and and for him that, that, that he would he was lied to by his church and six generations of lies. but he had the courage and the integrity to, to say, you know what? this is not okay. yeah I, I, I can't support this lie. And I think
1: that's the thing where like when you stop being curious about the other about other ways of thinking, you know, Annie Ligiewicz has this great kind of saying. She said, uh, listening is not the opposite of talking. It's the opposite of waiting to talk. You know, when you create those things, you're, already, you're not really listening to what they're saying. You're thinking, this is going to be my response. Now what I'm trying to do with the benefit of this kind of information is to really listen, to not just reflex back with a response, but to actually uh, be curious. And instead of saying a defensive statement, to actually uh, be curious and ask a question, how did you come to understand that? That's interesting. How did you come to understand that?
0: It's of what you just said is so important for everyone to understand. Uh, active listening is one one way of describing it, where you're not formulating the response while the person's still talking, but just really being patient and 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 entering their world, like entering, what do they mean by that? And, and allowing it to sink in before responding. Um, and it is a learnable skill. It's just not practiced in this fast paced world where everybody needs to react. And I can tell you for myself, I've learned the hard way about picking up and doing damage control because I wasn't thinking and listening. And patiently reacting, but doing something you know quickly. And I, I, it's, it's a work in progress for me too. And I apologize because I interrupted you a couple of times. That's another habit I'm really trying to uh, deal with. Um, but I also am thinking so fast. But I also am trying to put my mind in the uh, the listeners' uh, place. Do they understand what residential schools are? And I wanted to make sure they did because it's such a pivotal, pivotally important cons, uh, a, a historical fact that, uh, of what's what's happened. Dr. Cindy Blackstock, you are so special. I'm so grateful that we've made this connection and that you are my teacher. And yes, shout out to Desiree Kane, who... Is continually, you know, teaching me, and uh, and I just recently spoke with her husband, who does a lot of work with young people uh, on the reservation, and he told me something I hadn't heard before, which is, at least in the United States, seventy percent of Indigenous youth are living in cities and not living in reservations. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that, and and just. Trying to think how to take modern technology, the wisdom of indigenous uh, uh, past, and what the future is going to look like. I'm not, I don't know. All I know is if I can help empower other people to be part of a movement to help the world, help your tribe, help, you know, uh, countries and worlds. Realize this kind of predatory prey—you know, you either eat or be eaten. That's how Donald Trump was raised, according to his biographers. That kind of that kind of person who's a malignant narcissist is a danger to everybody. Yeah. And 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 the other thing that uh, I—it's kind of coming together with me—is that when people live in community and on a reservation on a tribe, they're accountable. To their neighbors, like they can't get away with crap (laughs) much, because people will call them on it, right? But in this digital age, where people are isolated, living in apartments and different houses, and they're separated from their birthplace, etc., we're missing all of that human um, power and wisdom.
1: Right. And one of the dangers of social media is the uh, anonymization of it, where you can go on there under, you know, I'm uh, X, Y, Z, one, two, three. And that then unleashes all this venom from these people. And often it's, uh, by the way, a very small group of people who are these trolls, but they're very prolific. And their whole idea is to really um, disrupt conversation, to really uh, inflict uh you know, doubt, blame, hurt onto other people. Uh, but that that creation of spaces where people can be free of any accountability uh, because they can go onto these spaces uh, as an anonymous person is very problematic. And that is one of those pieces that we have to think about. Is that actually a good thing? It's not a good thing right now. So how how is it going to be a good thing 50 years from now, right? It's yeah, being weaponized they- for bullying and everything else.
0: Thousand percent. The other side of that is we we don't have proper data privacy legislation to protect all of our histories online that are being collected in the dark web and then weaponized with algorithms and AIs and bots and and etc. Uh, to to indoctrinate the planet and. Um, it, freedom has responsibilities and we need to understand the corruption that's occurred in our systems of government and in the media, the censorship in the media. And I think you're so wise to be doing separate press conferences where you can control the messaging and you can, can control the distribution of, of, uh, of the knowledge of what you're sharing. I think that's smart.
1: Yeah, and to uh, you know, we did it uh, sequentially, so people could go listen to the government. Fine, what? right? L- l- hear what they have to say, but right. then you can come into this space. And I think that this is something we had. It's these small; they seem like small things. The other thing we did is, for example, with the document, I refused to sign it until they had signed it. Usually, they like to they get it gets sent over to the minister as the final signature. I said, no, you're the wrongdoer. If you don't w- want to sign it, why should I believe in it?
0: So it's thousand a small thing,
1: right?
0: And and uh, we were talking as mental health pr- professionals, you know, when 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 somebody does a wrong, saying sorry isn't enough. There needs to be a repair, right? Of-
1: because saying sorry can sometimes just, "I'm sorry, I was caught." versus I, <laughs> i've actually learned from this experience i actually feel really badly about what i did i understand what i did and here's what i'm going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again and here's that's how you can key. hold me accountable
0: that's the key is is it, uh, an apology is real when you promise never to do it again and then you never do it again yeah, exactly. so there's a, a time that's required to wait to see whether or not the apology is genuine and sincere.
1: Yeah.
0: So, uh thank you so much for all of your tireless work. You're an inspiration. Uh and uh I look forward to further conversations and and potentially meeting in person in the near future. Uh and uh may we all pray for peace and and, and mutual respect around the world for human rights and treating everyone as the precious beings that they are.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure.
0: We have a pleasure. I'm going to give you the last word if there's anything you would like to add because you're my special guest.
1: Thank you for that. I, I would really just say that you know sometimes we uh, we think that we're free. Um, but it is that internal voice that we have that I think is where we declare ourselves free. And we declare ourselves free by really thinking through things. And there are some days, for example, where I am crabby and I am tired and uh, doing that active listening is not on the menu, but at least I'm conscious about it. I don't expect it of myself in every conversation, but on the important stuff, I say, hold on, let's press the brake here for a minute. And let's think of this stuff a little bit more thoroughly. I think just taking those small steps of really declaring yourself free, uh, then that allows you to really discover if these words of freedom in things like the US Constitution or in the Canadian Charter of Freedoms are actually true. But we have to do that internal work and we have to do it with our family members too. Be curious, keep asking questions.
0: And, and listen to your inner voice.
1: Yes, exactly. Your gut feeling. When you get fed something, that doesn't sound right. Uh, then don't let go of that. This doesn't sound right uh, until you've really thought through why is it that this is really hitting a bad nerve with you. And don't get uh, convinced. Well, you know, no, that's not that's nothing to worry about. Let, let Really trust yourself.
0: And I would just add, if you realize that you have been duped and you are yes. part of something that's evil, something that is so opposite your values, you can leave.
1: Exactly. Okay. That's <laughs> not declared. The wonderful thing about declaring yourself free is you can do it. And it's, that's one of the greatest things of strength. It really is. That's when you become self-determined. Yes. Uh, so, um, and all of us have been down those pathways It's just a question of how far are we down the road before we do that Declaring Yourself Free. And I have so much respect for people who have traveled that road and have said, look, oh my gosh, um, this isn't who I am. And uh, I'm going to do something pretty courageous to to re-embrace me as a person.
0: 100%. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk again soon. I look forward to it. Take care. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence, both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a a three-and-a-half-hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery, invite you to use the hashtag IGotOut and join our online community at igotout.org. Thanks for listening. And remember, love is stronger than mind control.